The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. As we looked at this series that I've been bringing in the summer months here of various encounters of people of the Old Testament, dramatic encounters with God, I will admit there were several key texts I had in mind that I particularly wanted to address in this and then others that I put in uh, in between them. But this was one of the keys that I was hoping to cover, Isaiah chapter 6, a great Old Testament text one that needs to be explored and well understood as well as we're able. I'm going to read the 13 verses of that chapter and then just a few verses from Revelation chapter 1 as a supplement. Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, for your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, But do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
And I would just add beside this, the short passage in John's revelation, also a vision from God. Revelation 1, I read beginning at verse 12. John the apostle says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and upon turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me and said to me, Fear not, I am the first and last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive evermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is God's word. Whatever comes into your mind when you think of God is what determines everything about you for eternity. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God determines almost everything about you for eternity. The writer A.W. Tozer once said, no religion is ever greater than its concept of God. There are many religions that have foolish flimsy, and utterly false concepts of God. Tozer said, we as believers tend to move towards and grow into the likeness of our mental image of God. If that is the case, it's of great consequence that we should and must think correctly about God and that our concept of him, our ideas of him should correspond to his true and majestic being as the Bible reveals him to us because there's scarcely any error or byway of morality that goes in the wrong direction that did not begin with a wrong concept of God. There's a heavy obligation on the Christian church to preach and teach the biblical picture of God and of God's people to seek to know his true nature as it is revealed in Scripture. Now, there are a few places that are going to help us more with this than the epic chapter of Isaiah 6. Let me quickly try to set this encounter of an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah with God into a historical setting. It didn't happen in a vacuum. We actually know the precise year in which this happened, 739 B.C., because that was the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah dates it that way. The, king, the year that King Uzziah died. It was a momentous year. It was, you could almost call it a kind of 1776 year for the nation of Judah, the southern half of God's covenant people. They were just finishing a golden age. A king, Uzziah, had come to the throne very young and had reigned for 52 years and Next to Solomon, his was the time of the the most prosperity, the strongest military, the 
borders of the land being extended wide, Uzziah's time was a good time in which to live. I tried to think what it would be like to have a ruler over your country for 52 years. This might help some of you. John Kennedy was elected president in 1960. That was 52 years ago. If John Kennedy had lived and somehow, by a miracle of the Constitution, remained president for 52 years, he'd just about be ready to leave office right now. King Uzziah reigned all those years, and they were good years. Here was Isaiah, a man with some background in the court. We understand that he was a kind of aristocrat, an educated man. He wasn't a local yokel or a farmer. He was a a smart man, a man who spoke well. And he was thinking, what's going to happen? We've got a leadership crisis. Who will be the king Mighty nations are gathering on our borders. Syria and Assyria both were powers with designs on world conquest, and people knew that. What's going to happen? Who will lead? A worthy king was dead on the day that Isaiah met the ultimate king of all kings. And what makes Isaiah 6 one of the most important Old Testament chapters is the way it reveals God as the king, the holy one of Israel. If we would join our faith with that of Isaiah to comprehend what it means for God to be holy, 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 we can be and will be transformed by this God. Because knowing who God really is shows you who you really are. And it will set you on a course to both worship and obey and serve him as never before in your life. Now, first of all, today I want to show you that our text holds a clear vision of the eternal king. Here's the vision. It was real. It was vivid. If others had been standing beside Isaiah, they might not have seen it. He could have stood in the temple, and and this might have been his private experience. I can't tell you. Visions are, are kind of hard to chart scientifically. But what God revealed was his gift to this prophet. So he would tell us what he saw as he almost looked in a window of heaven. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe Filled the temple. Now, somebody's going to pause right away at the words, I saw the Lord. Maybe you're astute enough to say, doesn't it say in some places in the Bible, no man can see God and live? Good, you win the daily quiz. Exodus 33, as a matter of fact. Moses said, let me see your face. And the Lord said, no, that's not going to happen. God the Father, God the Creator, God as God is not seen. When he is seen, it's in some way that he has granted as a revelation. And the scripture teaches us clearly when we put Old Testament together with New Testament that the visible representation of God by which he would be seen is the person of Jesus Christ. Either we're looking at some great exception here to the word, no man can see God and live in Isaiah 6, or what we have in Isaiah 6 without the recipient of the vision understanding it in his early time 
is a revelation of God as he always chooses to represent himself in the person of the second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, in the book of Isaiah. Now, some of you will say, well, I guess you're stretching because you're a Christian pastor and you like to look for Jesus everywhere. Well, let me tell you, I'm not stretching and I'm not speculating. First of all, Colossians 1.15 tells us Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the way that God chooses to make himself seen to mankind. Of course, he had not been born in Isaiah's day on this earth, and yet he existed and had always existed before this. The Bible does say God the Father dwells in unapproachable light. It does say no man can see or has seen creator God. But it also says Christ the Son is the one by whom the Father makes himself known. And I read for you from Revelation 1, my only reference to that is going to be, I wanted you to see the similarity between the two visions, two representations, both of Christ, an Old Testament apostle or a prophet and a New Testament apostle. Now you say, aren't you speculating? I'm not speculating for this one clear reason. If you would look at John chapter 12, verse 41, John's gospel, John is speaking there briefly about this very same revelation to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And John writes there to say, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, if you need your pronouns straightened out, go and look at John 12, and you'll see that his and him in that sentence mean Christ. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of Christ. Is God's word wonderful or what? Here in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ enthroned as judge, one before whom these angelic creatures bring praise. Even in the Old Testament, God's Son is present. I wonder if anybody's ever been to a wedding where you've seen a bride with a train on her dress 50 feet long. The longest one I ever remember was Princess Di back in the 80s. I remember watching that as a pastor had seen a lot of weddings, and I thought, that train's going to catch on something and pull her over backwards. I was waiting for it. I'm sure there were royal people that made sure there was no tack or anything in the way that could catch that dress. Well, look at the train we have here. Isaiah was not in our meeting house sanctuary or any other mega church or anything like that. He was in the Jerusalem temple, the most splendid architectural space that there was in that time, in that day. The the place itself was something that drew exclamations from people. They said, look at that wonderful, stunning, beautiful building. Remember the disciples said that once to Jesus. Well, we, we read here that it wasn't the building that caught any attention. It was the king overwhelming the building. His train filled the temple. I, I can't picture that. I don't have any idea what that looked like. But God was saying the king overwhelmed the room that he was in. And then we, we read this strange little detail, and we could probably talk about some of these details for a long time, but I won't, that there were unique beings there, the seraphim. 
Check your concordance if you want. The only place in the Bible that seraphim appear is right here. And they're strange-sounding beings. They have six wings. They fly. They cover their feet somehow. And they cover their faces. Now, if there's any meaning in that, these whose name means flaming ones, by the way, appear to be covering their view of the great king before them. It's as if to say, look, the bodyguard of this son of God, this exhibition of the glorious king of God, can't, you know, they attend him all the time. They meet his needs. They travel with him. They can't even look at him. Now, that doesn't exhibit his glory. What does? One old commentator said, if angels are overwhelmed by God's majesty so as not to look directly at him, how rash are we men who presume we can penetrate his great mysteries? In short, here was the God-given vision of a unique king who wasn't going to rule 52 years, He wasn't going to be like Franklin Roosevelt, who you keep in four terms because there's a war on. He's not just the the guy that's going to bring stability in a golden age in the kingdom for a few decades. Here's the eternal king. Isaiah, if you're worried who is going to rule, here he is. He's going to rule eternally. Now, secondly... The heart of this text is really verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 6, where the prophet heard the seraphim call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And and then the, the effects of that were that the foundations and thresholds of the temple shook and smoke came into place. Here in the second place I say we have the holiness of the eternal king. And this is the heart of it, and it's the very heart of the doctrine of God in all of the Bible. Now, you probably know the, the biblical languages use repetition often for, to make emphasis. You know, we in our computers have, there's a lot of ways you can repeat something. You can put a word all in capitalized. I've been told, don't do that. It's like shouting. Uh, or you can bold it, or you can underline it, or you can italicize it, or you can put it in a larger font. Computers let us do all kinds of great things to emphasize something. Well, you know how Jesus emphasized truth. Sometimes he said, truly, truly. That's, look, pay attention. This is really important. Truly, truly, I say. But when the Bible repeats something three times, you can guess that's really important. In fact, speaking of computers, I found this week as I was typing out notes for this message, I had to write the words, holy, 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 several times. And my computer kept saying, don't do that. It it highlighted the third holy as if that was a mistake. It was telling me, change that. We don't recognize in our, you know, I don't know, the great gurus of software somewhere who make the rules said you can't have the same word three times like that. Well, you can have it one time only when it describes the essential character of God. Now, God has many attributes, and we could speak long about them, his love, his patience, his mercy, his grace. But all of those things being true of God, nowhere in the Bible are any of them repeated three times. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. Mercy, 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 patience, 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 even grace, 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 righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. But he is holy, 
holy, holy. This thing is at the core. This is most important. So what is it? That's the preacher's difficult question. You know, many people think holiness is kind of like moral purity, goodness. And they think of someone who has really lived an exemplary life and never appeared to break the law and never even jaywalked, uh, you know, in the middle of the block of the city or, or got a speeding t- ticket or even a warning for speeding. They lived a morally great life and they say, oh, that's a holy person. Well, that is a legitimate meaning for holiness. But it's not the primary meaning. In fact, usually when the Bible wants to say that, it says righteousness when it's talking about moral purity. When it says holiness, the Bible is talking rather about a harder word to define. It's separateness. It's otherness. It's being set apart from common things. I saw as we sang the hymn, I hadn't even thought about it when I chose the hymn, and as we've sung it, I've sung it twice this morning, the the phrase jumped right off the page at me for a simple definition. There is none beside thee. I said, yes, that's it. You want a few word definition of holiness? There is none beside thee. That's it. The total uniqueness of God. I was struggling to have an illustration that helped explain it, and I went to the source of all wisdom, my wife. (laughs) And I say that not jokingly at all. You don't know how many times she helps me. I said, I'm really kind of struggling with an illustration of holiness. And she didn't have an answer right away, but this morning, I think, she said to me, "Um, do you remember, I was thinking about what you said, you know, trying to illustrate holiness. She said, do you remember the time, and it was in this church, I don't know whose child it was, a very young child at the end of service, we're greeting people, came up and he looked up at me, I don't know if he's three, four, probably no more than five years old at the most. He looked up at me, I'm a lot higher up than he was, and he said, are you God? (laughs) This really happened. What would you have said? You know, I, I did deny it. But you know, from my wife reminding me of that, I thought, that boy sort of had, he was sort of going down the trail to understand holiness. I'm not God, of course. And I had to deny that to him. But here's why he thought that. He thought, this guy, first of all, he's very big. He's the only person around wearing a black robe. He gets to stand up there and talk, and everybody listens. He's unique. He's different. There's none beside him. He must be God. Well, he was wrong in his estimate, of course. I'm no more God than an ant is an angel. But he was getting at the otherness involved in holiness. He was saying, this guy is different. Maybe he really is the God that everybody's talking about. How do we convey this any any further? It's a hard concept. God is not simply a man or like a man raised to a high pedestal. You know, somebody with a really, really exalted talents who's way up there and, and every time he opens his mouth, pearls of wisdom just fall out. And yet he's still a man. He's still mortal. He's going to die and he sins. That's not God. He's not somebody elected to office. He doesn't have a successor waiting to take office after him. There is none beside him. 
there's an inherent sense of God's supremacy in his holiness so that one of the greatest titles that the Bible gives to him is the three-word title, The Most High. The one of which there is no higher. That's God. And so he becomes someone who rules, someone who is exalted. Isaiah, later in his book here in chapter 40, will say the inhabitants of the earth are to him like grasshoppers. And he's someone definitely not controlled or manipulated or made by us. J.I. Packer wrote in his great book, Knowing God, God is eternal, infinite, and almighty, He has us in his hands, but we never have him in ours. There is none beside him. This separateness of God, it makes the Trinity incomprehensible and mysterious. Yes, God has revealed himself. He's told us a lot about himself. But he's left enough mysterious and even a little fearsome so that when Peter You know, Jesus gave a command, put your nets there, get fish. You know, the nets were loaded with fish. Peter said, this is supernatural. This isn't a man. And what did he say to Jesus? Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That was an instinctive reaction to holiness. Divine holiness, yes, brings something called the fear of the Lord, which is not craven terror. It's awe. It's wonderment. It's a knowledge that this is different, this is great, this is grand. And I ask today, does that have anything to do with your base concept of God the Father and of Christ the Son? Do you see him in any way similar to this vision of Isaiah so long ago? If you know the Lord to be holy, 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 you begin to know, just begin to know the true and eternal God. But many people don't know him. You know, many people write off Christianity after a little taste of it or a little exposure to childhood Sunday school or something. They say, oh, it's boring. I don't want Christianity. It's the most boring thing in the world. Wow, you know, if I'm Isaiah in this vision, I'm not bored. This God is not boring. The biblical God cannot bore anyone who knows him. Now, in the third place, we come to verses 5 to 13, and I really glide over them quickly, but I do need to say something about them. Here are responses from the prophet to this tremendous revelation of God. I'll call this a picture of the humbled subject of the holy king. Immediately, this guy, you know, Isaiah, in our terminology, was a graduate of Yale, Okay, and he already had his master's in public policy, and he'd been working in Washington uh, for the NSC or or something, I don't know what. But he was up there. He could speak well. He understood power. He understood national policies and politics. He was a smart man. He wasn't somebody that was easily intimidated. Look at this text. Isaiah, the cultured aristocrat, the man who had been around power, the man who was in the center of religious power for the nation— saw this vision, and he didn't say, hmm, isn't that interesting? He hit the floor. And he said, whoa, 
Woe is me. I am in a deep and serious predicament. I am undone because my eyes have seen the Lord. Isaiah felt like he was coming apart, like he didn't have any worthiness, anything to stand on, not his dignity, not his education, not his way with words, not his morality, nothing. He said, everything I've got is like warm jello. It's coming apart. Who am I to stand here and see this amazing thing? But you see, the truth that's being demonstrated is when we see the deep truth about God in Christ, we discover the not-so-easy truths about ourselves. Now, Isaiah was a prophet already called in chapter 1 to do that, and he had been doing that work. He had been speaking edifying words, words that God himself gave. And he was a man of words. He knew how to use them. And yet, what did he say right away? People might know me for my words. What did he say? I'm a man with a dirty mouth. I feel like my mouth is full of cursing and obscenities alongside this truth I'm hearing about God. And I could only think, we talked about Job here recently, I could only think of Job at the end of his saga in chapter 42 when he said, at the end of everything God had revealed and run past his, his eyes, Job said, Oh God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. No more arguments, God. I repent. When you see who God is, you see who you are. And it puts you on your face. But then this strange, mysterious thing happens. The seraphim brings a burning coal. Now remember, this is a vision you know, God, there may have been a real coal touching real flesh here. God certainly didn't burn Isaiah's face off. But it was a vision. It was totally real in what he saw. And this burning coal comes and touches his mouth as a radical act by which God cauterized and cleansed his sin. This was the grace of God, the initiative of God to respond to the repentance of a man. God burned away the sin. Isn't that what he does in the cross of Jesus? Isn't the application of the cross of Jesus to our lives today nothing but a burning coal applied to our dirty mouths and our dirty minds and our dirty hearts, cleansing them by God's gracious, radical action? Then Isaiah, now cleansed, now transformed, God wants people to tell about him, and he says, I'm here, Lord. I'll do that. I've already been doing it, as a matter of fact. Send me. So Isaiah is commissioned to go tell the good news of God. Well, I don't have time to say everything that might be said about verses 9 to 11. There's some mystery here, but, but what a strange commission Isaiah got. The Lord said, good, I want you to go. I want you to preach. I want you to tell people who I am. Here's what's going to happen. Most of them aren't going to pay any attention to you. Those who pay half attention to you will be hardened in their hearts and will turn away from me more than ever. And when you're all done preaching, there'll be about 10% of the people left in the land that have any idea of me or, or any care about me, and the land and the city will be laid waste and ruined. That'll be the result of your ministry. Now, imagine that would be an ordination service. You, you know, Troy De Bruin here, some of you younger men who've been ordained. Now, imagine, I remember Troy's ordination not so many years ago, and you know, here's a young man giving himself to the, to the ministry, and we have high hopes for him and so on. 
imagine we said, Troy, here's your commission. Go out and preach. 98% of the people are going to pay no attention. And the result of your preaching will be more people will be hardened against God than ever before. Wow. Would you want to take on that ministry? But notice the note of hope. As God says, when it's like a burned over forest and there's a stump left, out of that stump will be my holy seed. My people will respond as I have designed them to respond. Now, in the final analysis here, this text could never be spoken about long enough, but we've learned that God is holy, holy, holy. That's pretty frightening in one way, but it's also liberating. It's a truth that transforms because it tells me he's not somebody to be trifled with. He's not somebody we've manufactured out of our own imaginations. He is the one of whom there is none beside him or above him or before him or after him. If we are going to worship him, folks, how could our worship be flippant or irreverent? We must worship, not what tickles our senses or entertains us or pleases us. We must bring worship worthy of a God like this, and striving to do that is a great endeavor, and we're never going to do it perfectly on this earth. But what a difference it makes when we know we're worshiping one who is high and holy and yet approachable, who desires our approach, who desires us, yes, to tremble the way Isaiah did and to fall down the way Isaiah did and say, woe is me, Lord, if, if I must face you. But then who comes to us with the hot coal of the cross of Jesus Christ and cauterizes us and cleanses us on the inside and makes us new people so we can take up his commission Speak his word even if nobody seems to be listening and they only get more angry when we speak because he's going to do what he's going to do through his servants. Someday the Bible says each and every person is going to meet this holy God whom Isaiah saw here in chapter 6. Everybody, not just you in church, everybody driving by, everybody at the golf course, everybody at the mall, everybody is going to see this God. They're going to stand before him as, what is he? A judge on a throne, a king on a throne. The judge of history. And a lot of people are going to meet him with their dirty mouths and their dirty minds and their dirty hearts intact. And when they say, woe, there'll be no good response to that because it will be woe for them indeed. But if you bow before this king, the king of the ages, who is none other than Jesus Christ, and submit to his being Lord over you today and the rest of your life, you along with all of us believers and people from Isaiah's time and earlier onward have a great thing to anticipate. That great thing is this. We will see his face. We will see his face. Glory. 
glory. There's nothing else to say. Glory. Our Father, we want to see your face. We long like Moses to see your face. And you're preparing for us to see the face of our Savior. We think of folks who've left our midst recently. We're seeing your face. They're perfected souls in your presence. And there's a part of us that wants to skip the rest of this world and say, let's go where they are. Lord our God, may we worship you as you present yourself. No manufactured caricature, stick picture God, but this God, the real God, the holy God. Help us to worship no other as we see you in the face of Jesus Christ, in your word, in your gospel. For Jesus' sake, amen.